This episode features discussion of drugs, sex, and illegal behavior that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. The employees of Stratton Oakmont lived paycheck to paycheck. Like many Americans, their budgets were stretched across car payments, mortgages, and credit card bills. They were drowning in debt. They showed up to work every morning cold calling investors, chasing the sales that would keep them afloat through next month. But unlike many Americans, the employees at Stratton Oakmont were making over a million dollars a year. Despite their generous payslips, they were going into debt trying to keep up with the lavish lifestyle of their boss, con artist Jordan Belfort. It was expected. Stratton Oakmont was a fraternity where no man was left behind. They bought cars, lived in mansions, and leased yachts together. Their jobs meant status, and status had a look. Jordan's look. Never mind the fact that he out-earned his brokers 50 to 1. This, of course, was by Jordan's design. So long as they were chasing, they couldn't feel financially secure enough to slack off on the job. It was the ultimate way for Jordan to control his workforce. So they signed onto boats, sports cars, and mansions complete with tennis courts and in-ground pools, an excess of wealth that kept them coming back to Jordan day after day, year after year, until the American dream crushed them. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alistair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and frauds who orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first episode on Jordan Belfort, the stockbroker who became known as the Wolf of Wall Street. This week, we're delving into the simple con that made him an overnight millionaire and brought his brokerage firm to the height of its success in 1993. Next week, we'll cover the investigation that led to his downfall, causing him to lose his money, family, and freedom. At the height of his career in the early 90s, Jordan Belfort was earning almost a million dollars a week through Stratton Oakmont, the firm that every young, new stockbroker wanted to work for. Within a few short years, however, his penny stock pump-and-dump scheme would be brought to a screeching halt when Jordan was marched off to prison. His company committed financial fraud temporarily investing in cheap stocks to make them look like a good investment 
selling those same stocks at a high commission and then withdrawing their money to put it in a new stock, leaving investors to believe they'd been burned by the market, not Belfort. And all of it was motivated by one desire – to get rich. A desire that stretched back to Belfort's very beginnings. Jordan Belfort was born on a hot, sticky summer day, July 9, 1962, in New York. He grew up poor in a dingy two-bedroom apartment in Bayside, Queens. His parents were accountants but struggled to make ends meet, a fact that shaped the rest of Jordan's life. From an early age, when people asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, Jordan would say he wanted to be rich. And luckily for him, his knack for business far exceeded that of his parents. In his late teens, in the late 1970s, Jordan bought a cooler and filled it with Italian ice treats from the local grocery store. He dragged the cooler to the beach and began selling the treats for a markup. He sold out in no time. That first week, he earned hundreds of dollars. The following week, he earned thousands. Then, he decided it was time for his business to grow. He would get his friends in on the gig, then take a cut of all their sales. Then he'd be pulling in some serious cash. It was his first foray into management at just 16 or 17 years old. He provided his friends with ice cream, and they would walk up and down the beach, selling until their coolers ran out. Theirs was an illegal enterprise, as it was technically soliciting and vending without a license or permit. The cops would occasionally break them up or ask the boys to leave. They'd scatter, wait for the cops to disappear, then be right back at it, selling Italian ice. Jordan's employees would sell their entire cooler by noon, take their cut of the earnings, then enjoy their spoils at the local arcade. This, Jordan says, was always the difference between him and the other kids. They would sell one cooler, then leave. He would sell four or five coolers, work all day, and save every penny. By the end of the summer, his friends were still broke. Jordan, meanwhile, had $20,000 in his savings account, worth just under $80,000 today. He used the money to pay for college. When Jordan turned 18 in 1980, he immediately began looking for a sales job he could work while attending college classes. He found one selling steaks and seafood door-to-door. -door. He spent his first day shadowing a senior sales agent who warned him in advance that this was going to be a rough gig. And sure enough, the pair spent all morning and afternoon getting doors slammed in their face. They never sold one box of meat. Where the senior salesman found defeat, Jordan saw opportunity. The next day, he asked to forego the rest of his training and set off on his own. It reminded him of his days selling Italian ice. He had used charm to move his product, but beyond that, people liked buying ice cream illicitly, knowing they were in on something that wasn't completely above board. People want to feel like they're getting away with something. 
So instead of acting like he was a salesman trying to pawn off seafood, he acted like he was doing the potential customer a favor. He'd tell them his company overordered and didn't want the food to go to waste. He'd been selling boxes to their neighbors at cost and wondered if they might want to buy a box themselves. He found a way to make his customers feel like they had found an inside advantage. This is the mark of a good salesman, and more pointedly, a great conman. Frank Abagnale, famous conman and author of Catch Me If You Can, once said, A con artist's only weapon is his brain. Abagnale says that con artists are masters of gaining trust, and the way they do that is by preying on one of the most basic human compulsions, sharing secrets. According to Dr. Peggy Drexler, author of the Psychology Today series, Our Gender, Ourselves, there is nothing humans love more than being in the loop on secrets. It makes us feel part of a community and superior to those who aren't in on the gossip. Conmen exploit this need by pulling us into the inner circle. In Jordan's case, this meant selling meat and seafood in a way that made his customers think he was letting them in on a rare opportunity. That first day, he moved the entire truck. His co-workers were in utter disbelief. He had bested their top senior salesman by a long shot, and he'd only been at it for 10 hours. Then, he did it again the next day. Jordan Belfort continued to sell out truck after truck for weeks on end. In the meantime, he began to pay close attention to how the business was run and quickly realized how easy it would be to set up a similar business on his own. As with the ice cream hustle he ran at the beach as a teenager, he recruited a few of his friends who were looking for work. Around 1984, he used his ample savings to get his own truck and buy his first supply of meat and seafood, then began selling door-to-door, -door, just as he had at the old company. By the time he was 22, he was a business owner, on his way to a sizable profit. At first, the business was a booming success. Jordan was soon able to buy more trucks and expand his selling area until they covered all of Queens. To celebrate, he bought a little red Porsche, the ultimate status symbol in his run-down neighborhood. It was around this time that he also met his future wife, Denise. A year his junior, she was cutting hair at a salon where he had stopped to sell seafood. He fell in love at first sight. She paid zero attention, but Jordan wasn't going down that easy. He ran home and got his Porsche, then drove it back to the salon and parked it outside, waiting for her. When Denise finally emerged, Jordan talked her up while leaning against his freshly washed car. This time, she not only paid attention, she agreed to a date. There, Jordan said, was the birth of the biggest problem he would have in life. He had no confidence that Denise liked him for who he was. He would always suspect that Denise, and all women for that matter, would only like him for his car, his house, or any other perk he could provide. But for the time being, 
everything was copacetic. Jordan and Denise were inseparable, and Jordan was determined not to lose her. His will to succeed was thrown into overdrive. He pushed his business to expand more quickly, too quickly, in an effort to get rich. He drove it beyond the breaking point, and soon, his drivers could no longer keep up with the routes. Supply began to pile up, and demand slowly diminished. Before long, his business went bankrupt. Jordan felt crushed, but his biggest worry was Denise. He worried she would leave him if he was an unemployed loser. Instead, in 1985, she married him. She was proud of her boyfriend for having the gumption to start his own business in the first place. She knew he would dig himself out of this hole and be back on top in no time. She wanted to be there for his every success and support his every failure. After that, Jordan was more motivated than ever to provide for his new bride. His greatest strength as a salesman had always been recognizing opportunity and meeting it with a willingness to hustle. Which led Jordan to the office of Stephen Schwartz, the sales manager at L.F. Rothschild on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan in early 1987. Jordan was interviewing for an entry-level position as a phone connector on Wall Street. He sat in Schwartz's office, keenly aware of the two dozen salesmen in the waiting room also vying for the job. Jordan was used to taking jobs nobody wanted. He'd never had to compete for a position. He quickly assessed the situation. He figured if he took a big swing and it hit, he'd stand out. If he missed, sure, he wouldn't get the job. But he also wasn't about to nab the job by fitting in either. This was an all-or-nothing situation, and Jordan knew what he was walking away with. Instead of answering Schwartz's next question, he began to pitch him stock. He sold to him like he would sell shrimp to a housewife, like he had a secret deal only he knew about. At first, Schwartz seemed put off. But Jordan didn't let that bother him. From the get-go, Jordan Belfort put the con in confidence. According to Maria Konnikova, author of Mastermind and The Confidence Game, con artists believe they are immune to being conned themselves. That blind confidence is often what leads them to succeed in the first place. And true to form, as Jordan blundered on full steam ahead, Schwartz came around. Schwartz recognized that the man in front of him had huge selling potential. He was a raw talent in desperate need of refining, but he was a natural closer, the kind of person that inspired trust. He was going to make L.F. Rothschild a lot of money. Coming up, Jordan Belfort takes the stock market by storm. Now back to the story. Jordan Belfort's first day at L.F. Rothschild was May 4, 1987. His job was to call potential clients, then connect them with the stockbrokers who would sell to them over the phone. It was a thankless, mind-numbing job, and it would be months before he could take his Series 7 exam 
and become a licensed broker. But from moment one, the whirring pace of the bullpen thrilled him. His job was tedious, but he spent all day watching the men above him make sale after sale. The quick pace, foul language, and constant commotion was alluring. Jordan grew addicted to the adrenaline rush of the bullpen, to the sound of money being made hand over fist. For the first time ever, his wildest dreams were quite literally within arm's reach, and they took human form in Mark Hanna, a senior broker at the firm. Mark Hanna was a six-foot-tall boulder of a man who made over a million dollars in 1986 alone, worth nearly $2.5 million today. On Jordan's first day at the office, Mark bought him lunch in the building's penthouse, a five-star restaurant called Top of the Sixes, where every member of staff knew Mark Hanna by name. For lunch, Jordan had a burger and a Coke. Mark had vodka and cocaine. The ladder to success, it seemed, was lined with vices. At the time, Jordan didn't even drink. That afternoon, Mark Hanna explained how to get rich with other people's money. Instead of letting clients sell their stocks, the game was to keep the client reinvesting in new stocks. The brokers took home fat commission checks every time the money was reinvested. The clients got rich on paper, but never saw a physical dime of their earnings. Meanwhile, Mark Hanna spent their money. Jordan Belfort wanted that too. The next few months flew by. Jordan spent his days screaming in the bullpen and his nights going to clubs with co-workers, trying cocaine and slowly getting used to the taste of alcohol. None of these vices compared to the rush of seeing money fly around Wall Street. After months of grinding away at his desk, he took his Series 7 exam and became a licensed broker. Finally, he would be the one making the money. He walked into work on October 19, 1987, his first day as a stockbroker with L.F. Rothschild, only to find that the market was crashing. Instead of making sales, he spent the next eight hours begging his clients not to jump ship as the stock market plummeted over 500 points. This day would come to be known as Black Monday. It was the single worst stock market crash since the one that spurred the Great Depression. Within months, L.F. Rothschild, which had been a titan of Wall Street since 1899, went out of business. And with it, went Jordan Belfort's promising career. He was once again unemployed, with no idea of what he would do next. But true to form, Jordan soon spotted a new opportunity in Long Island and seized it. It wasn't Wall Street, but it was a much quicker commute from their apartment in Bayside, Queens. The brokerage firm was called Investors Center, and by the looks of it, the place had never seen a good sale, probably because the firm sold penny stocks. Penny stocks are investment opportunities for companies too small to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, 
shares in these companies go for under $5. In and of themselves, there is nothing wrong with penny stocks. However, there are several reasons investors should be wary. Because the companies are small, information on them is much harder to come by. Those who invest in penny stocks often have to rely on their broker for information on the company they're buying into, which means they have to have a lot of faith in their broker. Next, while these companies do have to file paperwork with the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, there are no minimum standard requirements. Essentially what this means is, with the right paperwork, a neighborhood lemonade stand could go public. Just because it's a legitimate business on paper doesn't mean its stock is worth anything. Finally, penny stock companies typically have low liquidity, which means that even if a buyer is able to turn a profit with these stocks, they won't necessarily be able to sell them and cash out on those earnings. In the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan's first day at Investors Center shows a decrepit office full of run-down dads trying desperately to make a sale. Jordan, played by a dashing Leonardo DiCaprio, quickly impresses his new co-workers by selling $4,000 worth of penny stock to an unsuspecting new client hoping to get rich quick. According to Jordan Belfort, this scene is ripped directly from his life. While he worked his first client, the entire office fell silent, and the schleppy men around him began to gather on either side of his desk, enthralled by his selling techniques. Of course, now is the perfect time to point out that Jordan Belfort has been criticized by his former co-workers and spouses for being a self-aggrandizer. It's hard to say whether his first day really played out as was shown on screen. But regardless of the details, one thing is for certain. Jordan Belfort saw the penny stock firm as an opportunity and quickly started turning a profit. Belfort and the rest of his co-workers would cold call potential investors and inflate the perceived worth of a penny stock by lying about its potential, getting them to buy into companies that were essentially garbage. This was a precursor to the con that would soon make Belfort rich. Unethical, but not illegal. Yet. It didn't take long for Jordan to begin making more money as a broker with Investors Center than he did as a phone dialer at L.F. Rothschild. He was able to afford a fancy car and nice suits. And more importantly, he was able to give his wife Denise the kind of life he had always promised her. It was around this time in 1988 that Jordan also met his neighbor and future business partner, Danny Porush, and Danny's wife, Nancy. Nancy also happened to be Danny's first cousin, although this never seemed to bother either of them. In fact, Danny would talk about it gladly. As Jordan would soon learn, Danny was a man who found few things taboo. Danny was quick to realize that Jordan's career was far more lucrative than his own and asked Jordan to bring him into the fold, something Jordan was happy to do. He liked Danny. He recognized a loyal friend when he saw one, and Danny was as true blue as they came. 
At the same time, Jordan, who had always been a natural-born leader and believed he was the smartest broker at Investor Center, realized there was no reason he shouldn't be running his own operation. He was teaching the rest of the brokers to sell effectively. He was helping them make more money. They should be working for him. Just two years after seeing L. F. Rothschild crumble beneath his feet, Jordan went into business for himself again, franchising a branch of Stratton Securities, a low-tier broker not unlike Investors Center. In 1989, Stratton Oakmont Inc. was established in Lake Success, Long Island, with 27-year-old Jordan Belfort in charge. It was an instant success. Within months of setting up shop, Stratton Oakmont would generate enough revenue to purchase Stratton Securities, the company from which it was franchised to begin with. How did this miraculous success come about? Jordan Belfort had an eye for talent and desperation. Instead of chasing the caliber of broker that he had rubbed elbows with on Wall Street, Jordan hired his friends, much as he had in his teenage years when he illegally sold Italian ice on the beach. At first, the company grew slowly as his inexperienced brokers struggled to make sales. But they were young and hungry, which was all Jordan really cared about. After work, Jordan held nightly coaching sessions that could last for hours, training his sales force on how to close a deal. Then they'd grab a few beers and continue to pick Jordan's brain. One night, Jordan asked his brokers for every single excuse they'd received in the past few weeks from customers who weren't buying stock. According to Jordan, what every excuse boiled down to was a stalling tactic. Whether the potential client on the other end of the phone needed to talk to his wife, girlfriend, accountant, or just needed time to think, it was all the same excuse. They weren't confident enough to buy. There was no urgency. That singular excuse got Jordan's mind churning, and he began to develop his own selling technique, which he called the direct sell. In essence, it boiled down to making the client comfortable with the broker, then creating a sense of urgency that forced them to buy stock on the spot. He taught his brokers how to sell with confidence and clarity and bypass the excuses the potential clients were likely to throw at them. He even gave them a script. The new brokers were all earning as much as Jordan had been making when he first walked through Stratton Oakmont's front doors. Jordan also began to think about the clientele themselves. The clients he had now were trusting because they had no idea what they were buying or how the stock market worked. That was good for business. But they also had nowhere near as much money to invest as the big fish that were reeled in at L.F. Rothschild. That's when it hit him. The only difference between small investors and big investors were their pocketbooks. Rich or poor, all investors relied on their brokers to guide them to winning stocks. Suddenly, Jordan knew how Stratton Oakmont would make a name for itself. He would teach his ragtag group of neighborhood brokers to sound like the guys on Wall Street. 
they would sell huge clients on reliable stock like Kodak or IBM, names they knew and trusted. Once they'd made some money and had full faith in their broker at Stratton Oakmont, Jordan and his team would sell them on flimsy penny stocks marketed as secret one-in-a-million opportunities. The penny stock company might quickly go under, but by then, Jordan and his cohorts would have their commission checks and be on their way home in Ferraris. Since the clients also had a few good investments, they'd be all right with losing money on a couple of busts. With this new strategy in place, Stratton Oakmont grew at an insane pace. Within the first year, Jordan's brokers were making hundreds of thousands in commission, and he and his partner Danny were millionaires. That's when Jordan's devious mind really got to work. He realized that the problem with penny stocks wasn't that they weren't liquid. It was that they didn't stay liquid for long. And he could use that to his advantage. It was then that he devised his con, now known as a pump and dump. The plan was twofold and completely illegal. First, he and his brokers would exaggerate the value of a stock, convincing people to buy in just as they were doing now. But they would also use phony investors, which they called rat holes, to drive up the price of a stock. A rat hole was the Stratton Oakmont code word for a nominee or person who owned stock on paper. The use of a nominee is completely legal. They were used by investors who wanted to invest in a company in secret. So long as taxes were paid on the money and the appropriate paperwork was filed, and so long as the investor didn't acquire more than 5% of the company, it was perfectly legal. But Stratton Oakmont was using nominees to buy huge blocks of stock in new issues, meaning companies about to hit the stock exchange for the first time. Stock prices operate by the law of supply and demand. The more demand there is, the higher the price rises. Stock prices function as a sign of investor confidence. When investors believe a stock price will increase, they want to buy, which only increases the demand. In a good market, confidence and demand work together to push the prices up and up. In Belfort's con, the brokers would play on this, using their rat holes to inflate the price of the stock by buying shares and increase buyer confidence. And since Stratton was bringing the stock to market, Jordan got to set the initial price, which was always more than the stock would ever actually be worth. Then the brokers would begin selling to their clients, driving the net worth of the new stock into the millions in a single day. Just as the inflation reached its peak, Jordan would pop the bubble. He would have his rat hole sell all their shares, essentially dumping the stock, which would then implode on itself. The investors would lose their money, but Stratton Oakmont would have already collected millions in commissions during the process. At this point, in 1990, Jordan Belford was engaged in a full-on federal crime. 
His use of a rat hole and the pump and dump scheme as a whole boils down to investor fraud. He knew he was scamming people out of tens of thousands of dollars at a clip, and he had to be careful. But the company was doing so well that young stockbroker wannabes started showing up on Stratton Oakmont's doorstep from all over the country, begging for a job with the firm. In a little over a year, Jordan had turned Stratton Oakmont into a gold mine. He just didn't realize he was digging his own grave. Next, Jordan Belfort's company gains the respect of Wall Street and attracts the attention of the federal government. Now back to the story. By 1990, 28-year-old Jordan Belfort and his partner, Danny Porush, had turned a ramshackle penny stock firm into a multi-million dollar trade enterprise. 20-somethings with dreams of becoming millionaires began pouring in from all over the country, hoping to get a chance to work for Jordan Belfort. He was known as a formidable opponent, aggressive salesman, avid partier, and very fun boss. It was also around this time that the 28-year-old began using drugs more frequently. His addiction to the adrenaline-fueled roar of the bullpen had extended into substance abuse, in no small part due to a recent botched back surgery that kept him in near-constant pain. In his autobiography, Jordan says that this is when people began to call him the Wolf of Wall Street, although it should be noted that no source outside of Belfort has ever confirmed he had this nickname. In fact, he was more likely to be called a shark than a wolf, but Jordan swears by the name, and credit where credit is due. It was apt. Not only was Jordan preying on his clients, in a way, he also began preying on his employees. He soon realized that the issue with helping others make money is that oftentimes they want to strike out on their own, much in the way he had. It stemmed from the same problem Jordan had with his wife Denise, the question of loyalty. Whether it was women or employees, it was hard to tell who would stick by you the second money got involved. So Jordan began to devise more creative ways of keeping his followers loyal. The first of which was setting a certain expectation for his brokers to keep up with the lavish lifestyle he led. It's no exaggeration to say that Stratton Oakmont was a fraternity. As such, it attracted personality types that fit the archetype of frat boy. Dr. Alan Reifman, author of Psychology Today series On the Campus, defines these traits as extroversion, risk-taking, and excitement-seeking. It develops a pack mentality as the environment values conformity. Jordan was the fraternity president, so he set the standard for what was acceptable. His underlings vied to fit in. They wanted to be just like him. They had to, to keep their jobs. But they couldn't afford it. The problem was the pay disparity. By 1990, Jordan was a multimillionaire who could afford a $3.4 million estate formerly owned by Dick Grasso, 
the chair of the New York Stock Exchange. He was also able to invest millions in state-of-the-art security systems, butlers, maids, personal chauffeurs, a guardhouse, six cars, and a yacht. His employees struggled to keep up. They would lease expensive cars and buy the mansions that Jordan would pass on his way to work, knowing that the bills stretched his employees to the brink of financial ruin. In fact, it was Jordan's ability to push his brokers to these extremes that made them such die-hard salesmen in the first place. And so, the brokers were millionaires living paycheck to paycheck. The way they saw it, they needed their job at Stratton Oakmont to make ends meet, so they kept coming back day after day to the place that was both making them rich and completely broke. Jordan liked this. It allowed him to control his people. He also had one more strategy that kept his sheep in line. About once every two or three years, he planned to tap one of his brokers on the shoulder and give him the startup cash for his own brokerage firm. Between 1989 and 1996, Jordan actually did this two or three times just to keep his workforce hungry. That was the dream. You work for Jordan Belfort, he will work for you. Eventually, he'll set you up with your own firm and turn you into the multi-millionaire you deserve to be. It was also around this time, at one of Jordan's famous parties in 1990, that he met 28-year-old Nadine Caridi, a drop-dead gorgeous actress and model with a killer smile and perfect legs. Nadine was from Bay Ridge near Brooklyn, an equally poor neighborhood as the one Jordan had once called home. But despite growing up middle class, Nadine was a bona fide duchess. Her mother had immigrated from the UK, where a few of her relatives still lived, specifically her favorite aunt, Patricia. They carried legitimate aristocratic titles, even if the money from past generations hadn't made it as far. Jordan was enamored with Duchess Nadine from the moment he laid eyes on her. He loved the way she looked at his car. For years, Jordan's biggest fear had been that his wife, Denise, only loved him for his car. Now, he hated that she didn't. Within a few months, Jordan had filed for divorce. He paid Denise millions up front, plus an additional $50,000 per month in alimony to prevent her from asking for a full audit of his finances. It was the only way to keep the government out of his affairs. She walked away, heartbroken, but without a fuss. Jordan quickly moved Nadine into his estate and named his new yacht after her. And over the course of the next few years, Jordan settled into his new life. He and Nadine were married in 1991 when they were both 29. They soon welcomed their first child into the world, a baby girl named Chandler. Jordan thought she was absolutely perfect. His life was filled with perfect, beautiful women, his daughter being chief among them. 
But even though his personal life was panning out and business was booming, Jordan still needed a home-run stock that would legitimize Stratton Oakmont and make it a major player on Wall Street. And as usual, his business partner, Danny Porush, delivered. At some point between 1990 and early 1993, Danny Porush had brought his old friend from high school, a shoe designer named Steve Madden, into Stratton Oakmont as a rat hole. Steve's first payout for services rendered was $9 million, money Steve was able to use to start a shoe company. With said money came Steve's loyalty. By 1993, Steve Madden's shoes adorned the feet of every teenage girl in America. They were clunky, impractical, and an absolute must-have for every fashionista on the block. Every brokerage firm on Wall Street wanted to take Steve Madden public, but because Danny Porush had already been making Steve money hand over fist, he decided to go with Stratton Oakmont. This deal was going to be different. Yes, they would use rat holes to inflate the price of the stock to make an estimated $20 million in a single day. But Steve Madden was a legitimate stock that would actually grow. The price might be shaky after the pump and dump, but it would bounce back and generate commissions of brokers long after Jordan had taken his $20 million bonus check. But before he could get too excited, Jordan had to turn his attention to a new problem. He knew his phone lines were tapped. He suspected the office was going to be bugged, and according to his personal assistant, a group of federal agents from the SEC were sitting in his conference room with a list of questions about his business ventures. As Stratton Oakmont grew and the story of their success grew with them, it wasn't just Wall Street that began to take an interest in Jordan Belfort's dealings. The wolf of Wall Street was being hunted, and he knew a weak link would make for easy prey. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with our second episode on Jordan Belfort as he spends three years trying to evade the federal government's dogged investigation while doubling down on the scam that made him rich. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Erin Lan. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>